Welcome to Views from the Pews. Today, we're going to dive into the minor prophet Amos and look at the day of the Lord, look at some more language around justice and righteousness and worship and festivals. I'm joined today by the Reverend Dr. Andrew Binko and, of course, my cohort, the Reverend Jim Cook. Uh, Andrew serves at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in Austin as the associate rector, and we are glad to have him here. So in just a few minutes, we're going to dive right into Amos. So join us. And we're going to dive right into Amos chapter 5, 18 through 27. I'm going to read this text for us today. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Is it darkness and not light? As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him? Or went to the house and leaned with his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you shall take up Sakuth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will take you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. That's a powerful little text, Jim. What are we doing there in Amos? Well, Amos is a, one of the minor prophets, as you mentioned. Um, he was from the southern kingdom of Judah. But he's, he's, uh, his work is mainly focused on the uh, northern kingdom, to the, to the uh, wealthy and powerful classes. And, and he repeated, and for the most part, he condemns them. He condemns the wealthy and powerful for their, for their poor treatment of the poor and needy. And he, and, and by and large, threatens that God will punish them. Uh, and, and even as much as by bringing in a foreign army and, and conquering them. So he's, he's saying that your, your behavior has consequences. And um, so it, this is clearly before the, uh, the Assyrians took Israel and the Babylonians took Judah. So I think I read somewhere this, this took place about 10 years prior to uh, the Assyrian conquer, conquering of, of Israel. So... Um, Probably not a popular man in the northern kingdom of Israel. Which it seems to be most of the minor prophets are far from popular in, in their prophecies. I don't know many prophets who, uh, and of course Jesus will talk about this. <laughs> prophets were never welcome in their, in their, in their work. Because they, what it, I mean, here's what they do, right? They bring, they bring a lot of truth to bear on a situation, but not necessarily to people who really want to accept that truth or that reality. Uh, you know, I think that's the great struggle of humanity, right? We have our own realities, which may not be truthful or actually real, if one might say that. Um, well, one other thing that's worth noting is that, uh, according to my notes, that the northern kingdom was going through a, a period of a relative prosperity at that time, which they probably interpreted as God's blessing on them. Yeah. And so there's very little incentive to listen to Amos and change their ways because they think God is... Is okay with what they're doing. Yeah, under Jeroboam II, they seem to be going through this 
period of increased military and political power? Maybe. I mean, we can presume increased commerce and wealth, but seemingly it was unequally distributed, and that's a part of the problem going on here. But yeah, many of them certainly did uh, interpret the nation's prosperity as God's blessing. Exactly. And, and as, as you just mentioned, that sounds like a pretty dark passage. But uh, as I've mentioned before, I think, you know, the day of judgment is, is often interpreted by some theologians as a, as a restorative judgment, restoring uh, people to their rightful places and things like that. Not, not necessarily a punitive punishing, but a, a restoring. And so it, that's a dark passage for those wealthy and powerful who are basically being threatened, but it might be good news for the poor and needy because God's coming. Yeah, yeah. You could boom back. I mean, there's a lot in here. So why don't we start, let's start with our, uh, the pieces around worship. Um, and uh, let's dive in there because Andrew, I know you were, you being our biblical scholar amongst us with your PhD, I know you're going to, you got to educate me and Jim around this, uh, this part of the passage because uh, it's easy to read that. And a number of people have read that. And I'm trying, I wish I could think, I don't know, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. This is why I should write things down. There are several denominations throughout, or several several points in Christian history, in particular, where they have moved away from worship styled services because of this passage right. and similar passages. Yeah, yeah. So I and I don't know if that's actually a fair reading of the text. But this um, is likely kind of the earliest. This is the prototype for all those other passages that do this, because Amos is so early. Yeah. Yeah, so I was struck in, I was particularly looking at verses 21 through 24 um, in the description of worship preceding the verse, but pour forth justice like water and righteousness like an inexhaustible stream. And I really thought about how we as Episcopalians, we've kept a lot of the uh, incarnate embodied ways of worshiping that were around before the Reformation that some other traditions kind of threw out the window. We use gestures very frequently, right? Postures and all that. We have incense on special occasions, at least in some churches. So we get the sense of smell involved. We obviously have the sense of taste um, and sound, of course, where some traditions said we shouldn't even be singing. We should speak everything. We have rich traditions in music. And if you look at 21 through 23, um, we get a lot of these senses invoked. So... In verse 21, where God says, I repudiate your religious festivals. I will not tolerate your assemblies of worship. The verb there for tolerate is really smell. So what's being invoked here is uh, the burning of sacrifice and the smell. It's thought that as that burned, God would smell that aroma and God would be pleased. So there's very kind of physical or sensory uh, kind of worship happening here. But God says, I'm not going to, I won't sniff it. And then in the next verse, we hear about uh, religious feasts upon uh, none of your offerings, your whole burnt offerings will I accept. That These are uh, fully burned and offered to God. Um, and part of the thinking behind this in some Near Eastern cultures was that the gods sort of fed upon these sacrifices. And then in the second half of that verse, and your religious feasts upon fat meat, I will disregard. And so this is sacrifice to God, but now the people can share in some of the choice bits. And we have God, as it were, abstaining from tasting as well. And then in the next verse, uh, God cannot bear to listen to the tumult or the cacophony of your songs, the 
the word there for, for noise of your songs is really similar to like, it's used in other passages for like the sound of chariot wheels or the noise an army makes as it approaches. So it's just a terrible, awful noise. Um, so God doesn't want to smell you, uh, <laughs> taste you, or hear you as you worship. And then we hear this uh, culminating in let justice pour forth like water and righteousness like an inexhaustible torrent. So anyway, it just it reminded us it reminded me of us, the way we like to worship. We want to involve all the senses and feel like it's very incarnate and embodied. And here God is saying to the Israelites, at the moment at least, at this moment in their history, I don't want any of that right now. I don't want to taste it or touch it or smell it or hear it. Which begs the question, what does God want from the Israelites? What does God want from them right now? Would that be verse 24? <laughs> Maybe, maybe. Let's read, read that verse for us, Andrew, one more time. It's like an underhand pitch and a hit. <laughs> I always do that to y'all. Like to throw, you throw it right out there, uh, right out there. But I mean, so, like, that's part of what I like to do with these minor prophets is, okay, we know there's, um, we know if you read all the minor prophets, Amos included, they're calling attention to usually poor behavior and things that need to be amended. So I like to play the game of if everything was amended, what would it look like? If they did everything that they're invited to either stop doing or pick up, what would it look like? Uh-huh. So if we don't want religious festivals, we, if God's not interested in that right now, what is God interested in from the Israelites based on Amos? I think that is an interesting conversation. And it does hinge on the fact, on that, that word that um, can be interesting for people to hear, but justice, of which I think last week I said love lived out is justice. In my mind, love lived out. Um, so what does God want from the Israelites? You know, what would, it, what would it look like if they were living a quote-unquote perfect life, abiding by what God intends for them to consider, right? Let's go there. Where, 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 what do you think? Well, I, I gave a hint in my little brief intro about that, that Amos has been condemning the rich and powerful for their, their neglect of the poor and needy. And so uh, it's that, that stratification of society where you have the super wealthy and the super poor, and God does not like that. God wants the poor raised up uh, for there to be no more need, which, uh, and, and which, which would require that the, the wealthy and powerful give up something of, of what they have. Um, what's that phrase? You, you give from your abundance to, to, to people who have need. Um, I think that's what, what God, and I think that's why God, this is not the only passage where, where, where worship is condemned. And it's usually in a case of social justice situations where you have the wealthy and the, and the poor, and, and they're sort of neglecting, they're ignoring each other. And, and God always has a preferential uh, response to the poor and, 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 and to the needy. He's, he hears their cries. Which is interesting because if you rewind and, and earlier, I guess several weeks ago, we talked about Leviticus and, and how ridiculous it is in our modern mindset to imagine if you're a farmer and you have a field that instead of getting all the grain, making all the possible profits you can, you're supposed to leave some for the poor and the sojourner to pick up yes. and come glean from your field. So very early on, very early on when God's giving commandments uh to the to the people of god as they're as they're setting up their their land as they're moving into the promised land as they're making this transition it's 
very clear about who he, what he cares about. But it's what's interesting to me is we just don't talk about it, right? We don't talk about these things. But then to further complicate this, and Andrew, this is where I think you're going to help us, or, or I'm just going to throw you completely under the bus and, and tee it up really bad for you. But one of the things I want to call attention to to the poor is later Jesus will say in the Gospels, you're always going to have them with us. They're always going to be with you, the poor, but I will only be with you a little longer, which makes me wonder what's God doing there? Or am I just taking that way out of context? You know, what's, so there's this interesting in the Old Testament, I totally agree with you, Jim, right? There's this very strong emphasis on how do we create a society that seems to have some balance. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a balanced society will be a society that is, let me use words like happier, more productive, more caring, more, uh, and I think you said this one day in a separate conversation that was really stuck with me, that a balanced society would also be more ready to defend itself yeah. from outside enemies because you don't have internal strife and struggle. You're a united people. What are you thinking, Andrew, with us just rambling over here? Uh, well, uh, so uh, talking about what Jim mentioned a moment ago, uh, <laughs> that you think that, so the principles... Sort of the principles that uh, um, Torah is based on tend to be for this uh, concern for the, the poor and all levels of society. I, I really have to agree with that. So the prophets often um, aren't pulling what they're saying out of a hat. I mean, neither out of their own imagination or even just that God is giving them a new word that Israel's never heard, right? But they're often also appealing back to a legal system, Torah. Um, that is based on these principles of equity and regard for all strata of society. Right. And you might even say uh, preferential or at least um, uh, extra regard for the lower strata of society because maybe they're the, the ones who need most intentional regard paid to them. Uh, they're most likely to be overlooked or taken advantage of. Um, and when the prophets do this, appeal to this legal system based on principles of equity, um, then they vehemently usually, because when is Israel or any society fully living into this? Never. Then they vehemently criticize their society's failures to live into their own legal ideals. Like, they're not just surprising them with these regulations, but they're saying, hey, this is, this is your own value, supposedly, that you're not living into. Um, so in 24, this is kind of interesting, uh, we get these two words, right? And they, they appear together several times in Amos. We get justice and righteousness. And um, now I'm not an Old Testament scholar or a Hebrew Bible scholar. I'm a New Testament. But uh, wiser heads than I, uh, doing a little research, tell me that justice, mishpat, is often legal justice or kind of judgment. Kind of like uh, rendering a sort of verdict on some kind of legal issue. And this would be, in a, you know, ultimately appealing to Torah and its demands. Um, equity within a legal system that is supposed to protect all. And righteousness, tzedakah, is a little bit more relational in nature. It's about having good relationships with each other, a sense of commonality and right relations, uh, mutual respect, that kind of thing. And that they're related because Torah is meant to hold society together in tzedakah for one another. Um, in this kind of right, healthy relationship. So um, it's interesting to me that justice is the thing. Uh, mishpat is the thing that's going to 
flow forth like water, burst forth. So the um, legal judgment. The judgment, in other words, right? It's going to flow forth. Like a dam breaking or the sudden flooding of the wadis in the Holy Land. The and I think dry- it's... I was going to say, okay, so it's important here to just really understand the power of that, of that, of that image. You've got to think holy land. You've got to think pretty dry. You've right. got to imagine, like, oh, really, a gushing, really, here, in this very dry? <laughs> but that, that's the emphasis here, is that you're going to have this gush of, of judgment down. Right. So it, I feel like verse 24 may both use and also contrast this image that would be familiar to people in that part of the world um, of flowing water. Uh, being sudden and kind of dramatic. Uh, when the rains fall, certain times of, you know, these, these little dry beds uh, that normally don't have any water in them just become raging torrents, and then they dry out again. And so that ju- judgment, uh, mishpat, is going to sort of pour forth like water, break out. Uh, feels very kind of a dramatic image. And some commentators say about this, that people who've already been waiting for judgment Shouldn't be told, well, just wait a little longer. You know, we heard that kind of message from Martin Luther King Jr. Well, um, that when you've been oppressed, you shouldn't, be, had to, you know, shouldn't have to wait any further. Judgment uh, uh, leading to equity should break forth now. Um, but the second verse says that righteousness should flow like an inexhaustible torrent or an ever-flowing stream. And so this could be a contrast with the image of the Wadi's flood which is seasonable and episodic, and those beds are usually dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're hoping that this righteousness, tzedakah, right relationship, a sense of commonality, always flows, continues to flow through our lives, not when we think about it. And, man, I've been thinking about, in this case, uh, America's very, America at large, uh, it's episodic awareness of racial injustice. It seems like when certain things happen, it crosses most people's threshold of consciousness. Um, but vast majority of Americans don't think about it most of the time. And then something happens, and then we think about it again. And isn't that true of human nature, though? If you go back through history, even look at other parts of the world, I mean, it took a long time for people to even accept that the apartheid in South Africa was somehow wrong. Right. For a long time, it was, well, it's always been this way. This is just, somehow this is normal. Sure. Um, and that's just, it seems to be our inability to see the bigger picture, which probably answers my question that I made earlier about Jesus saying that you're always going to have the poor, but you only have me for a little longer. That's my paraphrase of what mm-hmm. Jesus says. <laughs> that's my South Georgia paraphrase. <laughs> uh, is that in actuality, if you take that and go a step further or back away and, and think about the love commandments, that was Jesus's way of, I think, restating what you're talking about in the Old Testament is how do you care for one another? What's going to be driven by your love of God? And then it flows into how you love each other. And then that's why I think Jesus goes further to say on all of these two, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Because what's at the core of Torah, which you said so eloquently, is how do we care for one another? How do we... How do we view the world? Well, and how do we relate to God? It really is both. Of yeah. Oh yeah. Both and yeah. for sure. Both. And we, how do we relate to God? How do we relate to one another? And Jesus just renames it, um, just restates it so simply. And of course it's so elegant restates it using quotes from it. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
But apparently, love of God is not a sufficient motivator because we still neglect others. We still fall into our old habits. And so there has to be a more selfish reason for taking care of other people. And it goes back to this notion that because, you know, Amos is, gonna, is telling the northern kingdom, God is going to, if you don't change your ways, God's going to punish you. He's going to bring an army against you and you'll be conquered. And, and of course, back then they thought everything happened because of God. Good or bad, it was God's doing, God blessing, God punishing. Um, but maybe there's something more to uh, an equal society, an even society where everyone has their needs fulfilled. Maybe you, you alluded to this a moment ago about. A, a society where everyone is is taken care of is a stronger society, and and, and that's what God is aiming for. You 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 make yourself vulnerable when you create these these, these strata in society, and, and where you have wealthy and you have poor, and 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 it's an unstable, unsustainable structure. And I would say it's not even just an in income, right? Not even just wealth and poor. It's just any time we create disparities, uh, we create. You know, somehow this group of people is something different than this group of people, and one's uh, lesser than the other. Anytime, anytime we do that, you create an opportunity. I mean, this is natural human tendency. You create an opportunity for there to be resentment, for there to be anger and frustration. If if you don't. inequality that does lead to anger, resentment, which usually leads to other bad behaviors right, that right. don't actually fix the issue. It's just a, like a powder keg blowing up on all sides. And there's the human messiness that's playing out in the Northern Kingdom. Because uh, yeah. in some sense, you got to imagine the wealthy in the Northern Kingdom in, in particular, because a lot of the minor prophets, whether we want to accept this or not, are talking about wealth. They're talking about those who have and those who don't. That is right. true across many of the minor prophets are very interested in that kind of inequality in, in, in Israel or Judah. And what it, what it's interesting is you've got to imagine that the wealthy are probably thinking, I worked hard for this. Why in the world would I give this up? Or, or I'm holier than thou and God's blessing me more, exactly. which is a normal way that people thought in the, in the ancient world. So why in the world would I would I give this? Why would I? Why in the world would I give this up? Well, on the other side of the coin is if you're poor, then God's punishing you, and who am I to to undo something God has done? In fact, I would be this could be offensive to God if I help this poor person because obviously they're poor because God's punishing them. Isn't that, isn't that an awful way to think? <laughs> <laughs> but it happens. It happens. It's tough. I mean, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, but that's what I love. That's why I like studying the minor prophets. I mean, it's easy to look at texts, even, uh, you know, not that they're all easy, but right. So you could pick up a, a feel good text in the gospel, mm-hmm. right? You pick up a feel good text in the gospel and you talk about it. And sometimes we gloss over certain aspects of it, you know, or, but when you get to the minor prophets, it's, it's it challenges you. It challenges you to have these very conversations, right? I mean, you have to think about things that we don't normally talk about out loud. Um, and as people of faith, and the three of us as clergy in a Christian denomination, it calls us to think about, okay, what, is this, what does this look like? You know, that's why I, like, I always like playing the game, although I don't think we fully answered the question. What would, what would God expect if everybody did what they were supposed to in the northern kingdom? Based on what Amos is prophesying against, what would they expect to see happen? I mean, I would think on the one hand, we've touched on it, meaningful relationships. 
a society that values all people the way God values God's people, mm-hmm. which I think is a truth that we often overlook that you get as they move out of Egypt into the promised land. They have this beautiful back and forth with God where they're not perfect by far. Not, I mean, let's be honest, the couple, there's a good chunk of that population that gets wiped off the face of the earth before they even get to the promised land. But nonetheless, there's this relationship with God, still caring for God's people back and forth and companions. Yada, yada. All are centered around how do we relate to God and how to relate one another. And, and, and that's the thing I think that's so important in the minor prophets. Do we wake up every day and think about ourselves first or do we start to think about the other? One thing I love about Amos and it's thinking about what what we owe to one another and what how we are to live together is that it doesn't rely on vague platitudes or you know sort of theoretical it, like Amos is not interested in theoretical justice or abstract righteousness he gets very nitty-gritty details so he talks about i mean you know today he'd be talking about union negotiations and <laughs> you know minimum wage laws or whatever so he talks about, you know, specifically you guys are, you know, inflating the value of the shekel and using unjust measurements when you go to sell things. You're selling the needy for a value of a pair of shoes into poverty. Um, I think it's Amos, but maybe it's one of the other minor prophets talks about. Uh, not returning someone's cloak at the end of the day that, as Torah stipulates so that even if you've taken their cloak and pledge, they have something to sleep in that night. These are all little kind of like mundane, why are you giving us this detail? But it's because I think there's no such thing as abstract justice for Amos or theoretical righteousness. Like, how do you actually live this out? Like, what are the things that you're doing or not doing for your neighbors? It's very very specific, and I love that. It doesn't allow you to kind of retreat. Yeah, and that kind of makes me think, you know, again, just as Christians, how often do we get that specific with what we think the Gospels are asking us to consider? You know, how, how often do we apply what Jesus teaches us in a very specific way to the world in which we live? Yeah. Or how much of it do we kind of go, oh, I don't want to go there. We put that over here. That's easy. I can do that. Uh, where I think the beauty, I mean, I mean I'm crazy a faithful life. And I think about the early church guys. I think about the guys in the desert. I think about the guys that weren't in the desert moving around trying to develop Christianity as we know it, but also building up churches, people of God in different parts of uh, of the Mediterranean and getting them to focus on certain things and care about uh, certain aspects of society. You know, uh, Lord, even in the book of Acts, you get a, you get that, we kind of gloss over it, right? The utopic vision. Everybody had and nobody was in want. We all remember that passage. And we read it, don't we? We read that one in Easter every year. I don't remember. It's one of the lessons. It comes up every year. And it's probably one that's rarely preached on. Because if you preach on that passage in this day and age, I'm just going to say it. I see y'all laughing at me. But I'm going to say it, right? If you preach on that passage, most people tune you out because, well, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> Is it though? Now, at the same time, 
I must look at myself in the mirror and say, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to go and freely give? Yeah. And right. Like, am I willing? Cause it's easy to talk about other people doing that. Am I willing to do that? Yeah. But that's, I think the beauty to go back to my point of faithfulness is that it's a struggle. It's a struggle, but it's admitting the struggle. It's not hiding from it. It's admitting that to, for me, and I say this a lot, and I've been on this kick lately in sermons. It's hard. It's not, Jesus didn't say it's easy to follow me. He does say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my burden is light. But to actually take the yoke is hard <laughs> to, to really re, to release yourself from yourself, yeah. your own kind of selfish desires and take on essentially the, the cloak and and and, and I, to, to not sound too crazy, but you know, take on the cloak and the and the and the mission of God in the world, which we revere saints for doing that all the time, yeah. and ones who don't even have the title saint, who 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 weren't perfect, but they admitted to the struggle and they committed to faithfulness and they kept working at it and they kept working at it and they kept working at it. I love that you said it's easy to talk about, and it's easy to point the finger at all right. those people sure. if they would just do this, yeah. and I'm like, well, will I do it? Like sometimes we have to be careful with that, right? We have to admit, where's our, where are we going to, where are we, where's our threshold? Where are we going to hit the door and go, hey, I've gone through a couple of doors. I'm going to stop here. This is good. I think sometimes we love to talk about this stuff, especially if we talk about it kind of in the abstract or theoretical. Like we, we find these ideas so beautiful and so dear. Um, and boy, we don't want to know what they would look like <laughs> in our life. And the, I mean, just to, be, just to name myself or give an example, like I can go to church in the morning and homeless person sleeping on the porch and go inside and preach a sermon about uh, God's concern for the poor and then on the way home drive past three or four homeless people begging on the side of the road before I get home. And, you know, I'll, it's maybe worth asking, what's the connection between how I live my life in the concrete to what words do I say or find beautiful in the abstract. That, that reminds me of the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And my, uh, my seminary uh, uh, theology professor, when he preached on it, he said, the point of the story is that it, it's not all right for there to be a man who, who begs on your doorstep and you have lavish feasts every day. That's, that's not all right. We shouldn't be accepting that. And... Um, and you're, I'm thinking about you're descri- describing a passage that if you preached on it, you'd, people would tune you out. And I was thinking about that. And, and this, this, this could be Amos's vision for, for, for Israel, you know. That's uh, Acts 2, 44, forward. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need, you know, and so on. And I, I have preached on that before. And yes, you could see the light turning off in these, their eyes. As, as, and you can almost hear, if you, if you could read their minds, they'd be saying either communism or socialism. That's wrong. And, and, and I, but, you know, I, I challenged them and said, do you take the Bible seriously? You know, do you take this vision of life among the early church seriously? Or is it just theoretical? Kind of, you know, and maybe this is a good thing to, or maybe not, I'll share this metaphor and y'all respond and that might be a good place for us to kind of just let this rest and let people wrestle with it themselves as we have wrestled so well with this text. And just think of how many different texts we just brought in just to talk about this one little minor prophet that 
rarely gets airtime in most uh, Bible studies or, or circles. Uh, um, but I was thinking as we move into this time of year where we're going to start seeing the Christmas movies, I always think about It's a Wonderful Life. And it's, it's the, uh, the crash, the stock market crash, the Bailey Building and Loans, George Bailey's there. In order for the Bailey Building and Loans to survive, by the end of the day, it has to have at least $1 to its name in their safe to, to stay solvent. And because of the run on the banks per the stock market crash, everybody was worried about liquidity. And of course, this is a great, led to the Great Depression. And um, George Bailey there, he just says, well, how much do you need to get by? How much do you need to get by till, till such and such time? And some people want all their money, but then other people are like, well, I just need $20. And all these hundreds of people come and get a little money from the building and loan. And at the end of the day, he has $1 left. And it's because people in that moment of panic and fear, and again, this is a movie, right? This is a movie. I'd like to think this is what we would do as a people. They, uh, they got what they needed for the most part. Some took everything, but most got what they needed to get by for a little while. And I think that's part of what we have to kind of train our, not really train our eyes because you can change lenses very easily, but turn that gear in your heart to see the other and to, to actually look out honestly on the world and say, okay, where's my place in, in helping to, to mend these things that seem broken? How can I be the water that gushes out of the dam? How can I be the ever-flowing stream of righteousness? And as the, the blessing you brought to St. Luke's uh, in your time here, Andrew, uh, how can I be the hands and feet of Christ in the world? How can I be the eyes and the ears? How can I be the mouth? And I think it's where it starts, right? It's not locking ourselves in our closet, beating ourselves because we think we're terrible. It's admitting that, yeah, we have some flaws. Scripture tells us that we are not alone. Look at the Northern Kingdom just in this passage of Amos. And all of us at any point probably could be convicted by what Amos is talking about, including the three of us in this room. Yeah. And how, are we the, how do we just begin to amend and, and change our lives ever so slightly? And, and in football season, it's a game of inches. It's not a game of yards and feet. It's, it's inches. It's inches. Sometimes you move forward a little bit and you, you move back a little bit, but you're, you're moving, you're willing to engage, you're willing to, to look out on the world and, and be an agent uh, of the gospel. Um, and I think that's ultimately what, what Amos is trying to get at. I think that's where we're headed with Amos, and it's what he's hopeful for, is wake up, look around you. What's, it's kind of like a parent, what's wrong? Are you really that thick-headed? You just don't see it, <laughs> you know? But yet God will stay with the Israelites, just like God will stay with the people in Judah. You know, these two divided kingdoms, God will walk with both kingdoms, but they're going to have some rough roads, both of them. They're going to they're gonna have some interesting, some interesting things happen to them. Um, but God will stay there in the midst of them no matter what. And that's kind of the day of the Lord. It's not always a negative connotation. It does because there's usually a judgment component to it, but then there's a restoration component. It's a, it's a very restorative in the, over the long haul. Well, I appreciate you, Andrew, for being with us today. We look forward to having you with us again and for sharing all your comments on Amos. And when we come back, I'll share a little message of hope for us uh, in our second segment. As we come back, I want to let Andrew share 
thing uh, that we, we didn't catch in the last, last segment that I think it'll be fun for everybody who's listening to go, to go listen to. Andrew, what you have? So in a little segment I'm just going to call Bible Jukebox, um, I like to take something from the passage and compare it to something from pop culture. Think about it that way. Look at verse 24. But pour water forth like, pour justice forth like water and righteousness like an inexhaustible stream. Um, I would commend to your listening Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall. He hits some of the same kind of concerns for justice and how we live life among one another that Amos raises. And he also thinks about what God may do and how God may answer some of those situations in a similar metaphor. Thank you. Let's go do that. Let's go do that. And the last thing I want to share with you in our little segment on, uh, I call it a segment on hope. That's probably not really fair, but I'm going to read this little passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I just like to, to wrestle with that passage and just kind of live in that, in that verse, if you will, not a passage on that verse. Uh, and just reminds me that no matter what's going on in the, the world, and no matter where I am in those conversations or those struggles or those anxieties and fears that God hopes and wishes and longs for me and for you and for everybody to have a, a future that's bright, a future that's uh, God-filled. And, and that's ultimately what, what Jesus was all about and coming among us and walking with us and God coming to us and the incarnation and Emmanuel, God with us, that God is with us and that God is working for us to to have a hope. And we have to just remember to tune into that. Um, it doesn't always mean it's easy, but God's there with us. And, and hopefully in this time post, post, uh, post election, as there's still some, 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 some issues that are being resolved in the courts, which is a good thing, which is a good thing. That's why we have these, these systems in place in this country. It actually makes my opinion, our democracy great, but I know it's very stressful for some uh, who might have voted one way and also stressful for others who voted another way. But ultimately, I hope we remember that God hopes for all of us to have a a beautiful future that's life-giving and full. And that and this is something I've said at St. Luke's, that the world's not going to come to an end, um, that we still have to work through COVID-19. We still have to come together as a people in this country. And, and this is true in every country lately who's had elections, is people have to re- learn how to reunite it's not a right and wrong. It's a either or and learn to listen and talk with one another. And Jeremiah, at different points in the prophet Jeremiah, he, he calls the people of God back to that listening and talking and also listening to God. Uh, and that's an important thing to do. So I hope we'll do some of that this week as we continue to journey together and continue to find ways to draw ourselves closer to each other and to God. And until next time. Uh, Many blessings on you, safety and health and wellness, and we will look forward to seeing you next time.